Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. On the show today, I'm very honored to have my very special guest, Dr. Richard Dew. Dr. Dew is a physician, poet, author of Brad, We Hardly Knew You, Rachel's Cry, and his latest book and novel titled Tunnel of Light. Dr. Dew is from Knoxville, Tennessee, and he's here today as Brad's dad to share his journey of survival after Brad's murder. Good morning, Dr. Dew, and welcome to Healing the Grieving Heart. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Can I call you Richard? That'll be fine. Now, I understand that in 1992, your son Brad was murdered? Yes. Uh, could you tell our listeners about him and about how he died? Uh, Brad, uh, as we all think, was a very astounding kid. He had just finished his junior year at Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi. He had been selected an all-conference linebacker and just been selected to Phi Beta Kappa. He had decided to stay there and work for the summer, and early on the morning of June 7th, he was returning home from work. There were two young men who, for reasons known only to them, had decided that they were going to murder the next person who came down the street. Uh, they did not know Brad. There was no previous connection. Unfortunately, that next person was Brad. They chased him through the streets of Jackson, taking turns shooting at him, until finally he was killed instantly by a single shot. Wow. He was 21 years old. Hmm. And tell us, how did you find out about his death? And uh, that, that was probably the most insensitive thing that happened during the time. I got a phone call from the local police department. I was on call at the hospital that night, and they said, is this Dr. Dew? And I said, yes, expecting this to be a call from a patient or the hospital. And they said, well, this is the Oliver Springs Police Department. You need to call the Jackson, Mississippi Police Department concerning a fatal accident involving Brad Dew. Wow. And then you had to tell your wife. Yeah, I had to tell the tell my wife, and uh, and then you know, the usual things after the death of a child. Did you call her or see her? No, no. She she was. Um, uh, I sleep in the other room when I'm on call, so I don't wake her up. So I got as many details as I could. This was 4:30 in the morning, yeah. and so then I had to go wake her up and tell her that Brad had been killed. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a what a thing for both of you. Um, so uh, could you talk a little bit more about then how did things go after that? You went down and saw the, uh, identified the body. Yeah, we were we were fortunate uh, just in that the justice system worked fine for us. Is they, they, they fell up right at first. We were told Brad was killed in a car wreck, uh, and that's what we had told all of our friends until 4.30 that afternoon. Oh, my someone, goodness, that's what they told you on the phone? or Yeah, well, they, they thought he had. Oh. Uh, he had run into a house going 80 miles an hour. Oh, he was driving. Okay, he was, he was driving his truck. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so then we got a phone call that afternoon from some of his friends who had gone down to get his uh, possessions out of his truck at the impound yard. And says, "Doctor, do something's wrong. This car is full of bullet holes." And so I called back, and uh, then they discovered they did an autopsy and found out they, he actually had been shot rather than died in a car wreck. Uh, but Beyond that is uh, the police department worked fine. They solved the crime in less than two weeks, uh, which was totally unwitnessed, and um, and we had a 
real positive relationship. How did they go about doing that? Um, well, one of the people who had killed him murdered someone else six days later and um, had been wounded in a gunfight, really. Um, and when they were investigating that murder, they found out that these two fellows had been bragging around town about killing my son. And so that led them to, to him. Wow. Now, no, thinking that he died in an automobile accident and finding out he was murdered, was there any disconnect in that for you? Well, there was a disconnect once we knew he was dead, and uh, so you know the the it, it it did cause further problems because you immediately start wondering, well, why what happened? And we had no answers for two weeks. Uh, but but I think that however your child dies, as most children die suddenly, um, you know either in accidents or by suicide or homicides, and so there's you kind of go on automatic pilot immediately. You're stunned, and I walked around in a daze for probably a week or ten days. And you're a person who had been with uh, families who had dying children. Well, that, and uh, mm-hmm. I was I was a physician in Vietnam with the Marines, and I'd seen uh-huh. a lot of young men die, mm-hmm. but uh, they weren't my young men. Yeah, isn't that the truth? I worked as a um, psychiatric nursing consultant and taught at the University of Rochester, and I worked with a lot of families on the surgical service, and I always would say to them, well, I think I can, you know, give you some help, but I don't know exactly what you're going through. And, wow, when it happens to you. It's totally different. It is. I mean, you see yourself doing what you've talked about. Right, right. But you can't stop doing it. (laughs) Yeah, but again, as I said, I was on pretty much automatic pilot for a while there. Yeah, how long did it take you to go back to work? I went back to work about two weeks later. Yeah. Um, I was concerned because I, I just I was preoccupied, and so I had my partners review all my charts for three months, really, to be sure I wasn't doing any dumb things medically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a rule that they, I did not want my patients mentioning Brad's name because I would break down. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Now we talk about whether or not. People should talk about the the child's name or whatever, but uh, in some circumstances, it'd be a good idea not to talk about. Yeah, I want, oh, I, I love to talk about him as soon as I got out of the office, but I just um, I really could not handle people's medical problem while I was having them console me. Right, right, and I think one of the things that we're going to get on it a little later is, which I think is very interesting, the way you've compartmentalized to be able to deal with your own grief. Right. And give yourself that um, permission to do that. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, how the boys got arrested? Did you meet them? You know, how did the trial go? Okay. Well, um, they were they were, were arrested and uh, and really never left jail after that. The trials were. It took about a year to get to the trials. They were about two months apart. Uh, they were both um, convicted of first degree murder, uh, and I was being very noble. I would was going to say, please don't give them the death penalty, and then found out in Mississippi that uh, first-degree murder means that you come up for parole in 10 years. And so for the last four four years, we've been going down every 18 months for parole hearings now. Wow. Now, how is that for you? Um, It was bad, the first one. Uh, After that, um, it's just something you do. And, And what I tell people when I'm talking to other parents whose children have been murdered is you you really have to you you have to almost become slightly schizophrenic as you deal with the justice system 
when you have to deal with it. You take it out. I, I put it in a. I call it putting it in a pigeonhole. I pigeonhole it until something comes up. I have to do. I take it out. I do it. Then I put it back in the pigeonhole and don't let it dominate my whole life. Mm-hmm. Now, is your wife able to do that? Um, probably not as well. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't talk about it very much, um, but it, it's much more trying on her when we have to go back for these hearings than on me. Mm-hmm. Now, did you sat through both trials? Yes. And did you go to all of the, all of the sessions? Yes, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. We we sat through both of them, and and that that was that's tough, uh, yeah. mainly because they you know, the, the defense attorneys try to make their people look as good as they can and um, try to find reasons for the unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, do you feel like too much um, focus was placed on the perpetrator and not enough on the family's loss? Or Not not in our case. Yeah, I, I know, I, talk about there have been cases, you know, <laughs> people I know who have had this, but in our case, um, I thought that the, the district attorney, they told us everything they were going to do, um, and... Um, and this, since this was such a senseless crime, um, you know, you worry about uh, is there going to be a technicality or something like that. But it did not happen here. So in our case, no, it was not a problem. Now, um, you talked about the legal system being quicksand, struggling with quicksand. Yeah, it's, I think that a lot of times uh, for, for many parents it is because they get so tied up in it that they, that they put their grief on hold. And they don't really deal with their grief. They're so tied up, they get into the victims' rights movement. And I didn't do that purposely because I, I felt like with my personality, I would become like a dog with a bone and I wouldn't turn loose of it. And I've seen parents who've done that. And five, six years later, there's still just these very, very angry people and every injustice they see just makes them more angry. And I didn't want to be like that. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, they're in jail, and you go down there, what, once a year? Is that uh, every 18 months. months. Uh, do you have any thoughts about, there were two of them, do you have any difference in thinking about the two, or have you ever yeah. talked to them? Or uh, I have talked briefly with one. Is The thing that bothered me most is it would have helped me more than anything else if I had gotten just a note or at any point if it said, you know, I'm really sorry I did this. But to this day, we haven't heard so much as a sorry about that. I know so, my my friend's husband was killed by a driver, and the kid uh, finally got a hold of my friend years later and said, "I want to tell you, I'm sorry. My lawyers would not let me do that." Yeah, and, and he finally may, said, "I have decided to do it. I don't care." That may be the case here. Is uh, I, I give a lot of talks and I talk at churches, and the first question they always ask me is, "Have you forgiven these people?" And um, to the extent that I don't ruminate on it, I don't wish them ill. I guess maybe I have. I think probably the most honest way of saying is I don't really hate them anymore. Dr. Du, Richard and I have decided we don't want to dwell too long on the legal system on the show, but I did want to read you what families go through. Um, just uh, on the Internet, if there's a brief Survivors of Homicide Incorporated, and it's put out by the Orange County Sheriff's Office and Brief Survivors of Homicide of the State of Florida. And it just has a rundown for people on what they might expect. And I was just kind of amazed at the list. The uh, apprehension and arrest of the accused, bail bonds, state attorney investigation, impact statement, deposition, arraignment, pre-trial trial intervention, uh, pre-trial conference, the trial, pre-sentencing investigation. And now Rich has had the trial, and now it is, um, what do they call it, uh, 
the hearings to uh, try to be released from prison, right? Right, the parole hearings. The parole hearings, that's the word I wanted, that he's going through. So um, quite a process, uh, I would say, Richard. How do families get through that, and how did you? You just do it. You, you, it's, it's like any people say, hey, I don't know how you survive your child. I don't know what I'd do if your child, my child was killed. Well, you don't have any choice. You, you just do what has to be done. Mm-hmm. And do you do families keep going? Will you keep going every eighteen months? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that's just one of those things. It, it uh, in a way, I would like to stop doing that, but on the other hand, it would almost seem like you were being unloyal to Brad. Mm-hmm. Can can you divide it up with family members, or is it really is it necessary for the parents to be there? It's really better for the parents. It just has more impact. Mm-hmm. Did they, did they have you make an impact statement? Uh, made one <clears throat> at the trials, and then you can make a statement to the parole board each time. Did you have somebody support you when you were doing that uh, to word it? And was there were there people that were kind of with you? Oh, uh, there were people. I, I we did our own. We did not ask for anyone to tell us what to say. We just um, wrote our own impact statements and were able to deliver those. Uh, the most helpful person. Uh, situation like this is most cities have a victim's rights advocate. And that's, their job is to help you. And she went to all the trials with us. She told us what was coming up. Uh, and she relayed questions back and forth to the district attorney when you know, we didn't want to bother them. And one of the things I think parents have to be careful about is not being a pest because if you are, then they just turn you off and you have no voice at all. So we worked through the victim's rights advocate, and we had a very good one. Uh, one of the people in her office, her son had been murdered shortly before, so they were very sensitized to it. Mm-hmm. And and when you say talk about being a pest and sensitized, I understand that one of the problems uh, can be that that they're so overwhelmed with crime that sometimes they become a little insensitive in the legal system. And and they and and they're the thing I think that we have to remember is that when someone is murdered, it is not a crime against us; it's a crime against the state. And so they are interested in getting their job done, trying to get a conviction, the same things we're interested in, but um, but they are overwhelmed. And, and for them they, it's a business. Is they just don't have time to talk to you. Yeah, and, you know, it's like many doctors who say they don't have time to talk. Uh-huh. Now, could you talk to us a little bit about what you see as the points that are different about uh, the death of children from other causes as opposed to... Um, Murder, because I know that um, in my experience, there's a huge amount of anger, you know, connected with murder. Yeah, I think that um, the, the first, the thing that is first and foremost uh, is that it's intentional. Is if, if you're, you know, if someone's in an auto accident, as we know, they happen. It hurts when it happens. They get an illness, um, but in this case, someone outside someone we know nothing about decided that our child did not deserve to live and proceeded to kill him. And uh, that's that's hard to incorporate into any belief system. And most of the things, you know, we think that life is sacred, and this violates one of our basic premises of life. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, in, in these cases, we were never with our children. And we always worry is that the two things that parents worry most about in a violent death is were they frightened and did they mm-hmm. hurt? And mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't know. We, and so we, we spend a lot of time run, replaying imaginary scenarios in our heads. Um, 
the, I think those are the two major things that are different. Um, and then if you get involved in it is, well, the media can be a real problem sometimes because if you, you notice, they, they always want to know when you're going, after the trial, did you, are you going to have closure? <laughs> As someone said, closures are for bank accounts, not for right. accounts. <laughs> and so, um, but, but, you know, the media is a two-edged sword like the, the justice system is. Uh, if you, if you are, if you're logical and, and, Think it out. You can use the media for your benefit too, and we we did that, mm-hmm. and uh, we were very pleased with our media coverage. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because I think media does get a tougher app sometimes. Right, know. and then and then you know the other things you mentioned that are different and are tough is uh, is at the trial, where you hear what wonderful people the murderers were, and then they somehow try to twist it around where uh, your child deserved to die. Right, and when he was just driving down the street, it was right. hard. And, well, and, and, and then, you know, just entering evidence is uh, the thing that the first time I almost came in glued is when they held up the shirt with a big bloody spot on the back of it. Oh, wow, yes. Mm. Um, how about uh, that two weeks when you were waiting for them to be caught? Um, oh, I, I was crazy during that time. Uh, I, was, I was calling the FBI and everybody. <laughs> I did mm-hmm. a lot of silly things then. Um, but... Not you know, it's just uh, <clears throat> I was I was caught up in they had to catch who did this, right? And fortunately, it went quickly for us. Is one of the real hard things for some parents are one that they never get caught, they never know who did it, right? Or why? And there are a fair and, amount of those. Uh, there are, and then the other thing is, is when they do get caught, and they get off, or they get off with just a slap on the wrist, and uh, that's hard for a lot of people to handle, and it would have been hard for me too. Mm-hmm. And also people who don't uh, have a body, right? Yeah, the, the, you don't have. You know, you, it's you, you. There's you can have. I think it'd be really tough not to ever. You know, where, even where they were. Right, and now you must have seen some of that in Vietnam too. Yeah, well, yeah, but we we usually had we usually had something to ship home. Mhm. Mhm. So those are, are really difficult issues to deal right. with. How about uh, the stress on your marriage? It can be a real stress, uh, and I think the loss of a child just in generically is. is not particularly that they were murdered, um, and I think it's because people grieve differently. Um, I found it I found it easy to talk. I needed to talk, and I would talk to anybody who wanted to listen, and a lot of people who didn't want to listen. <laughs> I <would> just <laughs> but the interesting thing is how you did compartmentalize it when you yeah. were at work. You didn't want your patients right. to talk about it, but yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and then my wife, my wife needed to be by herself um, for three years. Um, she left every Thursday morning and went to a little cottage up in the Smoky Mountains and stayed till Sunday night uh, by herself. She needed to get away by herself and do her grieving th- that way. Boy, that's really um, very sensitive of you to understand that because uh, there are a lot of people who would think that was not functional. Well, she wasn't was, working through it, or you know, it was it was frustrating. But yeah. but you know, she she needed to do it that way. And I, I, as soon as I was able to get myself together, within about six months, I started giving talks to people um, about you know what they could do to help people who are going through this situation. Mm-hmm. I actually went to the schools and did talks about you right. know, accidents and things like that, and how to. How to deal with it because you so want people to engage I guess, right. it is, around it. Yeah. 
Um, how about rage and desire for revenge? I read about that, uh, in, and, I, and I, saw, I see a lot of it in parents whose children were murdered. And just somehow, I, that never happened to me. I tried to work up a good rage. And really, other than just some irrational things, calling around trying to solve the crime myself that first ten days, um, I just I sort of, it was almost like I was watching myself go through all of this and just observing yeah. from the outside. I, I, I've yet to really become really enraged. And you were saying that you didn't have any rage, but I know I've seen a lot of rage with... Uh, people who have been involved with uh, homicide or suicide. Have you seen that? Oh, yes, yes. As I said, I think I was the um, the weird exception. Mm-hmm. How about your wife? Um, I'm sure she did, but she does it very quietly. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, uh, we were talking about uh, relationships and marriage, and you were saying that she went up to the cabin and spent time, and you spent time um, apart. Uh, right. Did it the time apart. Uh, how was your personal life and your sexual life at that time? I think ours was like most people who's, who's lost children from any reason, is uh, just in talking with hundreds of parents at Compassionate Friends and in uh, groups that I talked to, uh, there seems to be almost a universal loss of interest in sex, particularly by the wife. Mm-hmm. And this can be really stressful because us guys... Uh, if you ever listen to a group of men standing around talking, is they talk about sports, the weather, and politics. Uh, but they don't really have any real intimate relationships, for the most part, outside of their wife. Mm-hmm. And then when, and, you know, sexual intimacy is the one area of intimacy that they have, and when that's gone, I think that there's a general feeling that I didn't only lose my child, I lost my wife also. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, I think, uh, I don't know, I'm not a guy, but I think it's um, somewhat empowering for men, too. I mean, you've lost power with having a child go, and then, and then you, as you say, losing this relationship. Yeah, it's, well, it's just, you know, that's, that's the one place I, you know, that I think most men feel that they don't have to have put up a front, that they can, they can just share and, and, and be, be a person. And mm-hmm. we, you can't do that. So where do you go? Where do you go to have any intimacy after that? Yeah, I, I found that um, the thing is, it's almost sex is almost for a woman. I can give that point of view. It's almost like your first laugh or something. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a really a release where you actually let yourself not think about anything but sex. You know, right? So yeah. it, it's difficult. Well, and that, that's what prompted me to prompted me to write the novel. I'd heard so many people with this problem, and this deals with how fam- this couple works their way through that, among other problems. Too. Oh, what a wonderful way to deal with this in a, in a novel! So, <laughs> yes, if people are thinking about this, they certainly want to get your novel from DoBooks.com, and uh, the Tunnel of Light is the name of it. And I believe it's about a, a doctor whose son is killed in a drunk driving. Uh, his his daughter is killed by a drunk driver. Oh, uh, yeah, daughter yeah. killed by a drunk driver. It's their only child. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, that's great. Now, could you uh, talk a little bit about people needing to tell their story? Because I think that's an important aspect of the Compassionate Friends. I know you uh, said that you have talked there and gone there and um, the ability of well, what it means. My feeling on that, I, for me and I think for most people, um, just somehow incorporating that into your mind and your life that this has happened is too much to swallow at one bite. You have to do it a little bit at a time. And I call it playing your tapes. And every time you play your tape, I think you you accept a teeny bit more of it. 
Mm-hmm. And I think each of us has a set of number of times we have to tell our story before we can really accept the totality of it. And that that's that's takes a long time coming for a lot of people. Uh, I have a friend in, in our Compassionate Friends chapter who said when his, his son also was murdered, he said when Tommy was murdered that he would buttonhole people in the airport anywhere and uh, and tell them every detail. And it took him for 45 minutes to an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says now uh, he only t- he only tells a story when asked, and he can do it in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a couple of aspects of that story you're telling me now that are great. One of them is that you are actually with another man; his child was murdered, and you're talking about it, which is right. kind of an amazing thing. Right. Well, he sort of took me under wing right afterwards, and you know, you know, one of the odd things is one: what do you do when you're both working? Well, you go out to lunch. Mm-hmm. I didn't like to go out to lunch because I didn't like to cry in a restaurant. Right. So so he said, fine, let's stop and get some sandwiches, and we'll go down and sit by the lake and eat. So we ate lunch by the lake quite a few times. Uh-huh. Oh, that's, that's a, a good, wonderful story. Um, so how how would you suggest that people go about finding people to connect with? I know that um, one of the things that you've talked about a little bit is going to these victims' rights things all the time or being with murdered people or I know you can go on email and people are very angry and, you know, and they're talking about the legal system and how to maneuver it and how to, you know, deal with it and and the, uh, the rage there. But if you want to, and I'm not telling, I'm, on the show I want to say one thing, people have a right to their rage and we're not trying to tell you here that you shouldn't have it or that you should give it up or whatever. I think what we're doing here today is trying to uh, talk about a different direction when you're ready to take care of yourself. Yeah, it's, uh, you don't want to become so, you have to deal with the system, no problem. But if you become so obsessed with it, then what happens, instead of putting, pigeonholing the justice system, you pigeonhole your grief, and, and you really never move on with that. Uh, I purposely avoided all of these victims' rights groups. I never went to a meeting. I did not. I did not look into parents of murdered children. I went to compassionate friends. Is this was a group of people who were just like I was. Their children were dead, and they were coping with it. And I wanted to learn how they were doing that. And this is where I met Tom. Uh, mm-hmm. Tom was uh, the fellow whose son was killed. I met him at a compassionate friends meeting. And uh, I think that's one place to hook up with people that you can talk to. You and pretty, you usually will find someone that pretty much is on your wavelength, and then you sort of go out and do things on your own with them. But now, that, to me, that's you, the best resource you have. Now, didn't you tell me it was kind of amazing too? You went to a meeting once, and and you said we're not going to talk about the legal system at all uh, this, and this see was, what happens. This was at the national conference when where that where so many of the workshops had degenerated into just bitch sessions about the justice system. And so there were ten of us got together one evening for a sharing session and says, okay, we're going to talk about anything, but if you say one word about the courts, we'll cut you off. And there were lots of long silences for that meeting, but we all did much better having done that. And that's what I sort of what I've patterned my workshops after uh, since then is how can we, given the fact that our children are dead murdered, how can we go ahead and go about our healing and do our grief work ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll talk, let's talk about the conference, the next conference after our next break, but right now I would like you and uh, your poetry and your creativity are so wonderful, and I would love you to read a couple of, of your poems for us. Okay, I'll be glad to. This is uh, sort of odd. I've never written a poem. 
before Brad was killed. Um, and the first one I wrote, actually, um, was thinking about how suddenly our children die and how quickly a perfectly happy life can crumble, like in seconds. And the title of it is An Ordinary Day. It was just another day. No one special came. Nothing unusual happened. The evening was the same. Just an ordinary day. And then the telephone rang. From that moment on forever, everything was changed. The other one that I, in fact, I usually close any talks that I give with, early on I made a decision that if that there's some meaning was going to come from Brad's life. And basically I said I was going to live my life as a memorial to him. And this poem is entitled Memorial. The first line in it is the, the inscription on his tombstone. He lives on in those his life touched. Bronze words set upon a stone sound so simple, but imply much more. Whatever you would have done will never be. Yet perhaps you're a kinsman of him who gave Johnny his first pouch of apple seeds and caused a continent to blossom. Now I plant seeds. From the love we gave and received, from the memories of the life we shared, have come seeds of kindness, tolerance, and peace given by you to me. I will plant and gently tend them in the hard, rocky places, the dry places. And as I do, each seed I plant will be in remembrance of you. Ah, how wonderful. Thank you so much. Lovely. Have you have you found that, that uh, Brad's death has changed your practice or the way you relate to people? Oh, yes. As I, I was... Um, I was a hard-charging um, type A perfectionist personality who sort of made everybody else be perfect and came to be known as a jerk because of it, particularly around the hospital. And uh, <laughs> and the last sharp word I ever said to a nurse was on June 6, 1992. Uh. It's just, I mean, in an instant, it, it you know, becomes so apparent what's important, what's not important, and what your priorities really are. And all these things that I had been getting ulcers about for so long weren't important, so they don't bother me anymore. Huh. And and how how did you do that? I don't know. It just, it just happened. happened. It just happened. Is uh, you know, is I I would go in and some lab work's not on the chart, and I used to just blow a fuse. But you know, I'd go in. The lab work's not on the chart. I'd say, could you get the lab work, please? <laughs> I, I don't know what happened, but you know, it's just after your child dies. Is you know, what else? What's important? You know, how, how important are all these minor problems we have compared to that? Right, yeah. Um, I, I tell people a lot of times that the, the uh, road to healing does not lie through the courtroom. That's just a necessary detour. And I think people really need to do what has to be done with the justice system, but don't become so obsessed with it that they ignore their own grief work and healing. And um, I have a personal thing is try not to become a permanent victim. A lot of people do that. Uh, if you need counseling, get counseling. The place I found the most help was at Compassionate Friends. I went to a chapter meeting and uh, have been going for the last 14 years. I don't need to go now. I go now to try to pay back for what I got earlier. Um, and in time, I think that you'll find that you'll be able to focus much more on your child's life than their death. And I think we need to find ways to honor their honor and bring meaning to that life. And 
And I think there are several ways you can do it. It's the simplest one, as I said, is working with compassionate friends. Um, we hear a lot about people who say and do the wrong things. They don't do that out of meanness. They just don't know what to say. And many people can speak. So I give talks telling people, this is what you need to do, this is what you don't do. Talk to medical students, talk to nurses, talk to churches. Uh, if you can write, write books. Everybody can't write a book. But most people can talk to their local church group or their local circle of friends about what you need during this healing period. I think that uh, the other thing that a lot of people find healing is just to write a journal. Don't write it for publication. Just write it for yourself. And writing down what you're feeling, a lot of times will give you a good benchmark to come back later on and see what progress you have made. Um, one thing I'd, I'd, I'm going to impose one more poem on you if you like, if you don't yeah, mind. That, that would be lovely. But no, there's one is um, because when you lose a child is you just think about what you lost. But I think we need to remember what we had and um, and you know, given the choice, how long would you if you would you have your child or not have it at all? I wrote a little poem called "Would You." Um, to love is to risk, and with risk may come loss. And loss is full of pain. In full knowledge of this, would I want to go back and do it all over again? That we ever had you was a gift undeserved, unexpected, and unearned. An answer to prayers, a completeness and wholeness for which we had yearned. The time that we shared was the spring of my life, but I expected summer and fall. Still, if forced to choose, I take springtime alone than to never have known you at all. Whoa, <laughs> that's a beautiful poem. Um, now, I want to tell our listeners if they want to experience more of Richard Do, they can do it at the National Conference in Dearborn, Michigan next July. And I was assume you'll probably be presenting there? Uh, most likely. And uh, in order to uh, find out more about that conference, you can go on the Compassionate Friends website, and I'll give it to you at the end of the show. Um, Richard, I wanted to ask you, I would like you to tell our listeners how it would be for them to go to a Compassionate Friends meeting. Would they have to talk? How is it for a man? And uh, how would they get there? You know, How would that happen? Uh, the best way to find out where the nearest chapter to you is is just go to the Net Compassionate Friends website and you can locate a chapter or just call them uh, and they'll tell you where the nearest chapter is. Going to support group, I had referred people to them forever, and but I was not a support group person. <laughs> and then I found out I'm not doing real well. And uh, even for me, who knew what they were all about, it was scary. But when you go, you don't have to say a word. Uh, my wife did not say anything for the first two years we went. But afterwards, she would meet with uh, a lady or two, and they became friends. They would have a lunch, and she got a lot out of just seeing that many of the weird things she was doing, a lot of these other people were doing also. So um, normally what we do at a meeting, we introduce ourselves, we tell what happened to our child, and then people just bring up problems that they're having. And eventually, someone's going to bring up a problem that you're having, and you'll see how they dealt with it, you might find that you can do the same thing. Now, do you have any rituals or special events uh, that help you to remember Brad? Have to uh, remember on, him uh, on Christmas Eve. We go and uh, we let we take a votive candle that burns for twelve hours and light it in the cemetery. And uh-huh. on the day he died, we we never could figure out what do you do on the day your child died. Well, we live up in the mountains, and Brad used to always be on me because he said, you say you're going to do things, but then you get busy at work and don't do them. Why don't you do the fun things you say you want to do? 
and there's a big mountain here called Mount Lacant. And uh, we've been saying for 25 years we were going to climb it. So the third year on the anniversary of his death, I said, we're going to climb the mountain. So we, <laughs> we went up one side of the mountain and down the other, 15 miles. Oh, wow. And, yeah, uh, you guys were in good shape. But the thing was, is you, you get too, you're, you're tired enough where I, you, you don't have time to be too sad. And when I got to the top, I could just hear Brad saying, way to go, Dad. <laughs> so now every year my job is to find the hardest hike in the Smoky Mountains that we haven't done, and we do it. <laughs> now, who does it? Do you and your wife, or do you Gina, have other kids? No, just, just the two of us. Uh huh. And how about your other children? You have other children. I have one son. And uh, what does has he dealt with it? Is I don't know. That's that's been a real, real problem for us because uh, Greg, uh, for eight or nine years, whenever we've mentioned Brad's name, he'd say, "I don't want to talk about that," and he would he would not talk to us. Now. Uh, he will occasionally mention Brad's name. We can talk about Brad, and he doesn't immediately change the subject. But uh, he has never really talked to us at any depth at all. So uh, he's done some, kind of guy had some counseling on his own, but uh, I really don't know what all he's done and how he's managed it. Now, how, is, how old was he when Brad was killed? He was 20, 22. He was a year mm-hmm. and a half older than Brad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I know I have... Uh three daughters and one of them doesn't talk about it yeah and, and you know um, i think the worst thing we can do is to try to make them talk about it yeah uh, because you know when we're doing that is i don't think it helps them and maybe it'll make us feel more comfortable but we're not doing it for their benefit mm-hmm. but i think that's an important point here everything is not rosy glow and you know jolly golly and you know people still don't deal with it some people do some people don't and uh the important thing i think and the message I get from you is that you've got to find time to take care of yourself. Uh, Pat Loder made the comment, uh, who's the um, head of Compassionate Friends, made the comment that um, grief is a selfish activity and you've got to take the time. At some point you do, yes. I think that down the, and, and you don't start trying to help everybody early on. Early on you've got to take care of yourself. Uh, it was a year, year and a half before I really started giving talks and, and uh, started even writing the poems. Uh, I I put little lines down uh, that I might want to use later, but I, I couldn't do anything for about a year and a half except just concentrate on how do I get my head back together. Mm-hmm. So now it's been 13 years for you, right? Mm-hmm. And um, what what would you say the first year was tough? How about the second? Second year was um, second year was pretty tough is uh, but I, I i could tell um, i started sleeping better so i knew that and i could start looking to the future a little bit and in about two years i think i was pretty much back to whatever my new normal was uh, good point new normal yeah yeah or, right. yeah people want you to be back to normal that's like you used to be and that's not ever going to happen right but um but i think that particularly in violent and tra- and sudden deaths it takes a lot longer uh, there's a fellow named nap wrote a book that was excellent about this and did some good research. And uh, and and he found that most women, um, just from the loss of a child, it takes about three to four years before they really get back to you know, some normal. good mm-hmm. level of functioning right. And I know my wife, it, it was about six years before she really started getting her old sparkle back and uh, and laughed and and. and but but the thing I think that you need to carry on though is even though it takes a long time, um, we're happy. We have a good life. We're happy with it. Uh, we would like for it to have been a little different, 
but uh, we have a lot of good memories, and we have made as much good come out of this as we possibly could. And it's, it's well, thank up. you. That's a wonderful note to end on. It's time to close our show, and I want to thank Dr. Richard Dew for being on the show and talking about the difficult uh, aspects of murder of a child and the hope and renewal. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.